Welcome to Salem First Assembly Podcast. May this week's message by our guest speaker be a blessing to your life and helping you to grow in your understanding in God's Word, strengthen your faith, and equip you to become all that God has created you to be. I am really glad. Japan is a wonderful, wonderful country that needs missionaries there. And a lot going on there. And so the Perdans are going there, and I pray that um, as he comes and gives us his heart burden, I pray your heart will be open to hear what God is doing, what God has done. And then hopefully, maybe down the line, we might be the ones that be able to hold the ropes as he goes forward. So can you welcome missionary Dan Perdan, Perdan with us? David Perdan. God bless you. Thank you so much, Pastor. <laughs> Well, good morning, Salem family. It is a privilege to be here, and I gotta tell you, um, my roommate in college, in Missions College, when I grew up at at Valley Forge, his name was Daniel Connor. Him and his wife are actually also itinerating in the same circuit as us. They are going to France. And so the amount of times we have done services together, and he has been introduced as um, David Connor, and I've been Dan Perdan. We've actually switched names on stage a couple times, intentionally just to mess people up. It's their favorite thing. Well, anyway, my name is David. Um, my wife Lauren so wishes she could be here. She sends her regards. She is right now flying back from Texas where she was um, helping to lead a, a speaking at a camp um, for Chi Alpha students and where amazingly, did you know um, that 80% of Assemblies of God world missionaries who go to the most dangerous places on earth, that 1040 window, all come from our campus ministries? I found that out myself just this first time this weekend. I, I'm a product of that as well. And so she is serving there, um, really excited to be here. But for us, um, we are going to the city of Scuba, Japan. Now, he, here's the thing. Let's just start a little bit with at least my story, especially since, since Lauren isn't here. You see, my story begins not like my wife. She, she did it the way that you're supposed to do it, or at least as I thought growing up in the church you were. No, she got called when a good Christian is supposed to get called to missions during missions convention night at eight years old as a kid at camp, right? Get this. She even got baptized in the Holy Spirit when a good Christian is supposed to at Holy Spirit night at the altar at camp. See, I was a little bit of a late bloomer, but who here knows that God loves the lost so much he will use even us if he has to, okay? That's my story. Now, I grew up in church, right? But I gotta tell you, missions was one of the furthest things from my mind growing up. Now, who here knows the phrase hindsight is twenty-twenty? You know, even me in my young life looking back to when I was younger still, it's really easy to go, All right, God, I see what you're doing there. I could see the seeds of a call and a burden for missions he placed in my life. And one of the reasons I could tell you that is because I would get so excited whenever a missionary would come to speak. But at the same time, I would get really uncomfortable because I knew he was going to say that terrible, horrifying two-letter word sometime in in that sermon, if you want to guess what that is. Go, oh, wow, so maybe I'm not alone in all this. But wouldn't you know it, by the time I got to college, um, I really, really strongly felt the Lord saying I needed to take even a short-term trip, even that, overseas. And I got to tell you, I started traveling, this terrified, curly-headed kid who grew up in the um, cornfields of Ohio, traveling overseas to the Buddhist world in Asia. And 
I gotta admit, I grew up in church, and I know that there was a lot of work to do. You know, I I felt really compelled that I needed to lead Bible studies and, and reach people in my community. But the moment, I'll never forget the moment in Asia when I got in the back seat of a taxi, and you know, we've been praying up for this, we've been getting all excited for this, you know, you kind of work up that courage, and I remember tapping him on the shoulder, praying he spoke English, which he actually did, and I remember asking him, hey, um, do, you, do you know Jesus? And I'll never forget the feeling that I had when he turned around and just in complete and normal tone of voice, yeah, if you have his address, I can take you there, do you, you know? <laughs> And that's when it dawned on me, all those scary numbers and the stats and the statistics that missionaries love to throw up like I am behind me on the screen right now, wait, this is actually a reality. And this is the first time that I understood what the term unreached or never reached means. Now, let me explain this really quick. Who here knows that everybody needs Jesus? We all need Jesus in this room, the people right next to this building need Jesus. The people all the way in Japan and the rest of Asia all need Jesus. Everyone, including myself, are equally lost and in need of a savior. But here's the thing, when we use that fancy term, when missionaries like to use the term, who's heard the, heard the term unreached people group before, okay? And you're like, okay, well, I get that, but that's weird, but like, isn't everyone who doesn't know Jesus unreached? Well, here, here's the reality. Unlike the people in my, around my home church back home, unlike the people in this community, the people here in Salem have you. The people in here in Salem have proximity to Christianity. And what I didn't realize is that math, that 80% of all Buddhists, Hindus, and Muslims, which by the way, takes up almost two thirds of the world's population. 80% of them will statistically live their entire lives, be born, live a full life, and die without ever having bumped into a Christian in passing in the grocery store. We're not talking about had a, a weird encounter in a church or saw Jesus, hell is real on a, on a billboard and didn't really understand that or call the number, but never even encountered the name of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm gonna be honest with you. When I came back from my first couple trips to Asia, this reality hit me really hard. But who here knows that our God is way bigger than any problems that we think? This seems like a mess of a problem. And to make matters even worse, as you can imagine, the cost of following Jesus for those who do here is also often so much greater for us here at home. But I want to tell you about my friend Eam, who God used in my life to completely change my perspective on this issue and actually is what led us to being called to the ministry work we're working with today. You see, I took a trip and I met a man named Eam. Now, at the time, we were there to do some children's ministry and I thought that Eam was actually a leader in the indigenous church where I was serving. But I came to find out from the other missionary that was hosting me that, no, no, Eam and his family actually just heard the name of Jesus preached the first time just two or three months before I met him. And get this, in that time, he came to know the Lord, his wife came to know the Lord, his parents came to know the Lord, his twin daughters came to know the Lord, and the whole family as a unit were boldly, openly evangelizing out of the street side cafe that they ran together. Now, in my travels in Asia, 
this is super rare. I, had no, I was convicted by this, and I was supposed to be the missionary in this situation. The question is, is what made Eam and his family so different? Well, they were deaf. They couldn't hear. And when I had the opportunity of asking his two hearing daughters at the VBS we were running, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? I will never forget this moment as long as I live. They looked at me almost like I was stupid, and they said, well, we need to be Bible teachers because there's no one to teach our parents. Has anyone ever felt the, the Holy Spirit like a dart? That's just like this uh, this is what I have made you for. This is what I have made you aware of. And I want to talk to you for a moment about how we believe, Lauren and I, God has called us to see this applied to the second most unreached nation on planet Earth after North Korea, the nation of Japan. Now, why do I say that? Because Japan, after North Korea, is the second least Christian nation. Actually, Japan is less than 1% Christian. Studies say that it is 068 percent Christian. That means that less than one out of 100 people will have ever heard of the name of Christ before in the nation of Japan. And not only that, but the church that is there, the average church size is about 10 people. So congratulations this morning. We are currently sitting in a Japanese megachurch. Sad news is the church in Japan is quite literally shrinking. But Lauren and I have the privilege to have joined a church planting team in the city of Scuba, Japan. Now get this, where we are from our city in Scuba into the dead center of Tokyo, there's a train line that runs through the most densely populated urban area on planet Earth. And our team has a bold vision. We wanna see a church planted along all 20 stops of the Tokyo Scuba Expressway. We wanna grow the main congregation and we wanna start planting off of that thing. Now here's the thing, praise the Lord, God has already called a number of other missionaries to this team that we're kind of joining together. And almost like a pastoral staff, we each have our own unique skills, passions, and burdens for ministry as we're church planting together. And Lauren and I want to see the first fully indigenous, culturally deaf, Japanese church planted among the never reached. Now, here's the part that we didn't even realize until after we already felt led and confirmed by the Holy Spirit to join this team, is we didn't realize until we even got on the road that get this, not only a university, but the only university for the deaf in all of Japan is five minutes down the road from where our very first church plant in scuba is. It's almost like the Lord has a plan for this. Now, my, if my wife were here, you, I, I, I'm a little sad that you, you got denied of this. She actually would be interpreting this entire message for me in American Sign Language right now as I was speaking. I'm not quite as adept at doing that while talking at the same time. But she would tell you that her family is actually saved. She is a pastor's kid from Ohio, but her whole family came to know the Lord because someone reached out to her own gra grandparents who are deaf. It's, her grandparents were saved in an Assemblies of God church in Akron, Ohio, and we believe that is why when we are praying for Japan, we are praying not just for the deaf in Japan, but that their families, their hearing families, would be reached through their ministry the same way that Lauren's family was reached by the deaf who reached out to her. Now, I, here's what I'd like to do. Like I said, I kind of joked in the beginning about how, how Lauren did it the 
right way, missionaries were supposed to be called. And I took a little bit later. So here's what I'd actually like to do. I'd like to kind of go back to the word, and I'd like to look at maybe some of the verses that I think I maybe got right as a kid with my assumptions, and some things that I maybe didn't get quite as clear as I should have. So we're gonna be going back to where it all began. I believe probably the most important set of instructions that we have in the Gospels, which you might know as the Great Commission. All right, let's go to our scriptures. So I'm gonna be reading from Matthew 28, from 16 to verse 20. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Now when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Dear Lord, you are so good to us. God, you are so good to us that not only have you redeemed us, not only have you sacrificed that we could be made whole, but Lord, that you have called us to be a part of something so much greater than ourselves. We love you, Jesus. Bless this word to our hearts. In your name we pray, amen. Now, who here knows that context is important when reading your scriptures, okay? If you don't, who here's ever had something you said maybe get taken out of context by a friend of yours? It doesn't always feel good. And if it's not straight up wrong, sometimes it's like, well, that, that wasn't the full extent of what I meant. So what I want to do here is, is, is let, let's, let's zoom back a little bit. Let's take a look at exactly what's happening in the scripture. What happened right before this? Well, we talked earlier about Easter. We have Easter coming up here real soon, right? Easter, we celebrate the time when Jesus rose from the grave, when he defeated death, hell, and the grave. And he came out of that tomb swinging, and yeah, he went back and he, he played some tricks on his disciples going through the walls, terrifying them a little bit. It was great. And after all that, he says, listen, guys, we are gonna go back to where this all began. We're gonna go back to this mountaintop on Galilee, where most of this started. So let's, let's talk about that for a second. Um, Galilee, what, 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 I actually had a professor in college give me a really, really weird challenge. He said, David, I want you to read through your gospels, right? And I want you to take a highlighter of a different color and I want you to highlight everywhere in your Bible where you find the word Galilee. And I'm gonna be honest with you, I kind of was a terrible student because I barely got through Matthew before I was sick and tired of the word Galilee. Why is that? Because it's everywhere. And they went to ministry on the Sea of Galilee and they went through all the Galilee. And it's, it's when you just really start to realize that in really only about three years of ministry, all this time in the creator of the universe incarnate, only spent three years of ministry here on earth. And you know where he spent an overwhelming majority of that time. Was it in Jerusalem, in the up-and-coming cultural center, where all of the influencers were? Did he spend it in Rome, where he could influence the government and surely have maximum impact for his message? No, he spent it in Galilee. Now, you might be asking, okay, David, so what's so significant about Galilee? And let me tell you, the most significant thing about Galilee 
is that there is nothing significant about Galilee. You see, Galilee wasn't exactly the up-and-coming urban metropolis of the near ancient world. No, it was the collection of towns or region where if you were born, you could really only pray about making it good enough to move out of Galilee. No one grew up dreaming and said, I can't wait to live in Galilee for the rest of my life. Surely the disciples themselves didn't think that. And so maybe, let, let, let's, let's take a moment here. Maybe at some point in your life, you kind of feel a little bit like you kind of live in a Galilee. If not physically, maybe inside you feel a little bit marginalized. See, Galilee was the set of, it was the margins of society. It wasn't the inside. So maybe at some point in your life, you feel like maybe you just don't have the same time, talents, interest, money, things that seem deemed valuable by the true society. Well, if so, you are in luck because you are exactly the kinds of people that our creator chose to spend most of his time here with. Interesting. And let's talk about our audience here. It says right here, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee. Okay, this wasn't the giant kind of shifting crowd that would follow Jesus as he was doing his ministry that kind of ebbed and flowed. No, no, these were the 11 disciples. And I don't, I don't know about you guys, but I tend to get sometimes a little awestruck, might be an exaggeration, but like, we know these as the 11 disciples of Jesus, the apostles, right? We know, let's pick on Peter. Pastors love picking on Peter, right? We know the end of Peter's story. We know that in Acts, even though he, he starts off here, we know that by, by the, the time, you know, Jesus ascends into heaven and he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit, we know that he is so on fire for God, so infused with the power of the Spirit that just his shadow passing over people is healing them. But I think sometimes we can get so awestruck by leading, reading the lives of these men that we forget exactly who Jesus is talking to right now. You see, right now, let's meet our audience. Who is he talking to? You see, he's talking to four teenagers who work part-time at their dad's convenience store. Uh, that would be the fishermen, um, Andrew, Peter, James, and John. You have one washed-up IRS agent. That would be Matthew, the tax collector. And when I get to heaven, I still want to know how this earthly relationship played out because you have the washed-up IRS agent standing right next to the urban Antifa protester in Simon the Zealot. I think perhaps a way better description of the disciples at this time when Jesus is speaking to them are scared teenagers. Not exactly heroes of the faith. I don't know about you, I know that I, I, I'm young standing here, but I will tell you that scared teenager or scared anything is a lot closer of a label that I personally relate to rather than hero of the faith. And yet... Who is Jesus giving these next words to? And I love what it tells here. I am so humble. I am so thankful that, that God controls his word as it was forming. The, the word that we read in our Bibles today, right? And he, he told us, he had the authors keep in scripture the fact that while they were all standing there, when they saw him, they worshiped him, duh, but some doubted. 
These are the 11 disciples. Again, this is not the masses. They had just seen him come back from the dead. Even Thomas, who was doubting, has felt the holes in his hands, is seeing the resurrected Christ in front of them in the flesh and blood, and Christ tells us even then, some doubted. Now let me take one more pause in this message to tell you something that teenage me did not understand. And that is that if you are in this room right now and you have questions, your doubts do not disqualify you from being considered a disciple of Jesus Christ. Your doubts do not disqualify you from being considered a disciple of Jesus Christ because it didn't disqualify them. But there is a flip side. That also means, however, that your doubts or whatever you think you think of your spiritual life, your doubts do not disqualify you from the responsibility of fulfilling the Great Commission because Jesus didn't think it disqualified them. So let's move on. He, he goes on and he continues to tell us, he looks at his terrified group of, of youth students and he looks at them and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I love that this is what he sets it up. This is how he leads into the command he's about to give them. Now, let's do a little bit of homework here. Who remembers the Garden of Eden when everything got mated, right? Everything from Genesis, God made earth and it was what? It was good. And he made the birds of the air and the beasts of the field and it was good. He made man and it was good. Man is alone. I can only imagine what Adam got himself into by himself. And he says, that's not good. Okay, um, made him a wife. Okay, that's good. All right. And all of this time, he also gave us, humankind, his authority. He gave us authority and dominion over the rest of all the good stuff that he made because we were made in God's image. And he says, I'm going to give you dominion over the world, because when you are playing by my rules, when you agree with me what is good, you are an extension of my authority and my control. But who here unfortunately knows the end of that story? We didn't hold on to that authority very long, did we? No, because what we did when mankind bit the apple, when sin entered humanity, what that was was saying, hey, listen, God, you know, I, I see that you made all the stuff that's good, but what if I decided for myself what was good and not good? What if I rejected your, your wisdom of what is good if I ejected your authority to do my own? And here's the thing, God said that that's fine, but there's a problem with that, isn't there? Because if we don't live under his authority, that means we don't have his authority anymore. Has anyone ever felt like your life is just out of control? Or there's just something in your life that you should be able to control, but it's just, it doesn't work, and it's so frustrating. Well, that's because if you read the curse in the Garden of Eden, if we go back to Genesis, the curse is God telling us the consequences of us having to live our lives but without his authority. Because he was telling us plainly, listen, guys, you're still going to have to have kids but it's gonna hurt. You're still gonna need to work the ground and eat, but it's gonna produce thorns. And why is that? Because we haven't ceased to be, but we no longer have control to do 
what we think we want. Because we decided what we want is way more important than what God wants. And all of human history to follow has been the story of humans grappling with what they want without the power, without the authority to do anything about it. And so what Jesus is saying here is he's looking at his group and he says, guys, you don't understand, I did it. It's finished. All of that groaning, all of humanity's pain, all of its suffering, everything that it can't do until now, I have finished it. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And I will tell you in this room, if you are feeling like your life is out of control, I will tell you on good authority that there is no other source of authority in your life you can find other than through him. There is no degree you can have, no expertise, no amount of money. There is no power, no privilege that you could possibly be born into or attain that will ever compare to the creator of the universe. And here's the thing, he's telling us that he's about to give it to us, so we're about to get into that, but it only goes through remembering whose authority and whose kingdom we're trying to build. And that's when he gets to the meat and potatoes, the time when, this is when teenage David would be squirming back into my pew seat because he looks at them and he says, therefore, go. Go and make disciples of all nations. Now, here's the thing that I want to tell you, right? I would actually, the irony is, is today I would love to stand up here and tell you that going is the centerpiece of this verse upon which everything else hinges, But let me tell you a reality here, my friends. Going is important. That's why we do faith pledges. That's why we do all this, as I'm about to tell you. But if I, David Pradan, missionary to Japan, goes to Japan, but I am not making disciples of Jesus Christ, that is called a vacation. If I preach to you, but I am not making disciples of Jesus Christ when I preach, That's called a lecture. And if I baptize and I'm not making disciples of Jesus Christ, that's just called a water balloon fight. I don't know what we're doing at that point. Which means that the Great Commission, as it applies to all of us, no matter your background, no matter your your self-worth that you feel, the Great Commission for all disciples of Jesus Christ is to make disciples. So, This begs a fair question, right? I think it's fair. All right, I hear you, David. I'm willing to agree with that. So what's a disciple? Now, how many of you, if we're being honest, has only heard the word disciple in church or reading your Bible? Okay, that's me. That is the only time I've ever heard it is a a Christian context. And we we understand a disciple, which is accurate, as being a follower of Jesus. That's good, maybe a devoted follower of Jesus. But... Here's the thing I think we forget is that when Jesus originally said, go and and make disciples, his terrified youth group that I was talking about, the 11 disciples there, I can almost promise you that they would have had a very specific picture in their minds come up when he said that. You see, they probably would have thought of these stuffy kids in these robes in the streets of Jerusalem, all bickering and elbowing and biting on each other to argue over who got to walk first behind the rabbi, the teacher that they were following. Because get this, it was considered an honor to be, walk so close to your master that you would get physically covered in the dust 
of their shoes. why, Why is that? That sounds weird to us because if you were a disciple, if you were a follower of a teacher, that meant you wanted to say whatever they were saying. You wanted to do whatever they were saying. You wanted to eat whatever they were eating and you wanted to go wherever they were going. Because if you were a follower of someone, that meant you kind of wanted to do that yourself one day. So, I will say a disciple of Jesus Christ is simply this. One who learns to do what the master does. I'll say that again. A disciple is simply one who learns to do what the master does. So the million dollar question of maybe the whole day is this. What did our master do for us? I think Paul summarizes it really well in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, which I'll read here, where he says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, our master, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. In fact, this same terrified group of youth students, you know what they saw their master do? Yes, they saw him walk and preach and teach and perform miracles and have power, but also more recently in their minds, they watched him wash the feet knowingly of a man who would lead him to his death. They watched him executed unjustly for a crime he didn't commit. And though he is resurrected in full glory standing before them, he's looking at them with all the love that Christ has and he's saying, your turn. Your turn. Go and do what I did. Go to the nations and teach them to do what I did. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I am feeling, when I hear that, probably the same that Peter was. It was just a couple days ago that Peter just denied Christ three times. He was cutting off people's ears. Thomas isn't making eye contact with anyone. They are a mess, all right? They have been trying to do what the master does for three years. They've been following him. They've been arguing with each other about who gets to sit at the right hand of Jesus when he goes up there. They've been missing all of his major points, but let me tell you, you cannot look at the scriptures and tell me that the disciples were not trying to do what Jesus did. Just like I can stand before you and say, I have tried really hard to do what the master did. But has anyone here ever gotten really tired and frustrated that it seems like you just can't no matter what? Because I'm going to be honest with you guys. Despite all this, despite my salvation, despite my faith in Jesus, there are people in this world that David Perdan, no matter how hard I try to force myself, just will not want to love. There are things that David Perdan will not want to say. And at least until recently, there were a lot of places in this world that David Perdan did not want to go. I loved Jesus and I knew that that he would want me to go and he would want me to do this and he would want me to talk to my friends or invite them, but that might make me, me feel weird. 
And here's the problem that I realized. You see, you know how earlier I talked about how I believe each of us live a little bit in a Galilee? You know, there's a part of your heart that knows, man, I'm a mess. <laughs> I need help. I am in the margins. I am not here. I do not have it all figured out. I need, I need Jesus, right? But there's another part of our hearts that I believe we all have that I'm going to call the authority zone. <laughs> it's the part that we retreat to really fast when we are tired, when we are hurt, when we are scared. It's the part that when you see that guy, and you all know who I'm talking about when I say that guy, when you see that person, that relative post on Facebook, oh. even me who is willing to go to Japan, I find myself retreating really quickly to, well, well, we just know that isn't right, is it? That can't be right. If only, if only, doesn't he know? And really quickly, we are using our authority to judge the situation, to live our lives, to try to do what the master does. Wait a minute. Whose authority was this? Because remember, my friends, it was not your skills, your money, your knowledge that made Jesus look at you and say, yes, this is the one that I want. Your skills do not qualify you for the calling. But that also means that they do not carry you through the calling. Because after all this, after all this, I just can't do this, he looks at his disciples, and what does he tell them? And lo, I will be with you always to the ends of the earth. Jesus knows that on your own, you cannot look like him, even though he's asking you to. Jesus knows that no matter how hard you try to force yourself, you won't be able to just muster up the faith on your own or the money on your own in order to do what he has asked you to do, whatever that may be. However, you are to make disciples for you in your context. He knows that the only way you're even going to be able to isn't through just ironing your will and trying harder. It is by getting closer and closer to the one who did it all. As I conclude here, let me wrap up with an analogy, okay? Humor me. Let's say that I am a teenager, going on that theme of teenagers here. Let's say I'm a teenager who has done the ultimate teen rite of passage, the driver's license. Ah, oh, yes, it's a terrifying thing, terrifying but exciting man in a young person's life. And not only that, but from my, my summer jobs, I have also gained the second rite of passage, the first junker car. I remember mine, 2001 Honda Civic with 300,000 miles on it. Her name was Martha. She kept me alive, but ooh, barely. All right, and I want you to picture, you know, maybe the parents looking with all the support and pride they can muster, but also the dad is secretly going, I don't know about this one, because like I said, this kid didn't even go to a proper dealership. All right, he found it on Facebook Marketplace. The previous owner didn't even bother cleaning the trash out of the backseat. This thing is a mess. But seemingly against all odds, the kid gets this thing home, right? And he's like, no, dad, this is the one I want. This, this with all messes, this is the one I want. And this kid, picture it, he spends the rest of the summer not hanging out with his friends, not even shut in playing video games. No, no, he is fixing that thing. He's on YouTube pulling out rusted over parts of the car. He's detail cleaning this thing, right? He gets it, and you know, it's not brand new, but by the end of the summer, to his credit, he gets this thing in pretty decent working shape, okay? 
Now, after all this work, after all this love on something that seems totally not worth it, I, I want you to picture the same kid not taking his new driver's license. No, no, not even the new title of deed, not the license plate, but taking the dirty mop bucket of water, the rusted over muffler, you know, the, the loose oil pan, and taking all that in his arms, kicking in his mom's kitchen door, and slopping it all on the table, and excitedly saying, Mom, Dad, look at what I bought. That doesn't seem right. Now hear me. I stand as testimony before all of you today that because of my God, my sins will not be counted against me on the day of judgment. I am redeemed. I am washed in the blood, not because of who I was. Now, I was that messed up car, right? But because of his love alone. But never make this mistake, my friends. Jesus Christ did not buy your sins. He bought you. He did not buy your sins just for your sin's sake. He bought us. And so we, in him, we have access to his authority. We have access to his healing. He's going to put you back together because he loves you and he wants to put you back together. But just like you don't buy a car and put it together just to never use it, you are redeemed for a purpose. And if you want access to his control, if you want access for those parts of your life that feel like they're out of control, you can't have his power without following his footsteps for his purpose. You were designed for the same reason you were redeemed, to bring him worship and to follow him, to go and make disciples. And remember, you cannot do that in your own strength. He is the one. He, just like that car can't put itself together, can't drive itself, we are that same way. You need him to take the wheel and you need to be willing to be driven to some places that you never would have thought you ever would have gone. And I can promise you, as testimony, you will never have a more fulfilling or exciting life in your life than following the God who loves you, who made us. Dear Lord, you are so good to us. Lord, you are so good to us that that you have redeemed us, that you've put us back together, that you are still in a work of putting us back together as long as we draw breath, Jesus. But Lord, right now, we want to say thank you. And we ask, Lord, that we don't have all the answers to make disciples, but we know that you have asked us to. We know that you have told us despite all of our fears, despite all of our insecurities, you want us to follow you. And Lord, just like my destination that I believe you've called me to be may be Japan, I believe, Lord, that for every believer, our destination is obedience. But Lord, we cannot obey on our own. Lord, we ask by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, speak to us. Lord, as we go from this place and we go back to the normal grind of our lives, I pray, Lord, that when that difficult person in our lives speaks up, that, Lord, your spirit would love us through you because that is what you would do. Lord, help us to go to these places. Help us to give beyond our means. Help us to share your gospel, Lord. 
Whether that's something as simple as giving that invite card to an Easter ceremony, whether it's giving recklessly to someone who is going somewhere we cannot, Lord, help us to be obedient to making disciples. We love you, Jesus. And in your name we pray. Amen. Come on, give the Lord a big praise in the house of the Lord. Thank you so much, David. Before we just do two more things, if you can just stay with me. is first of all, those watching online and each one of you here today. You know, David brought out something that I remember. My brothers had two, I had two brothers before me and they had a car. They beat that car up really bad. It was a 1966 Ford Falcon. My parents came to me and said, we're gonna, your brothers have trashed that car. We're going to get rid of it and get you a new one. And I said, no, no, no. I want to fix it. Both of my parents looked with these big giant eyes. And they said, what? You want to fix that piece of junk? And I said, I can renew her. I never named her. <laughs> and, um, but that's good. What, what was your name? Yeah. And, uh, and so I did. Tranny, motor, never did a tranny, did a tranny. Never did a motor, rebuilt the motor. Never did a paint job, redid the paint job. Did the interior. I got it all looking really good. It looked really good. And when I think of that story, I think of where my life was one time in my life. I was farther than father from God that you can become. A lot of my friends are dead because, and that could have been me, and there's many times that I almost died, and yet I'm still living. I say this is because we're called for a bigger picture. And though I ended up fixing up this car and had two other cars I fixed up for the world of wheels, I realized something that that's what God does in us. He he, he finds us in a point and a place and, and his love is always there just like when Peter fell he, he picked us up and if you're online or you're here today I just want to remind you that God's hand is still wanting to pick you up and he'll do the work on you he'll cause you to shine but you gotta have to give God room someone say give God room so close your eyes with me for a moment and those online I ask you to do the same I just want God to speak to your heart. God always wants to speak. We just have to listen. And right now, right now, God would say to you, I know exactly where you are. I know exactly what you need. I just need you to do one thing, my child, is that I just need you to let me lead you. Those watching online, God is just asking you to let him lead you. I know you've done it yourself. Many times, I just want to ask, where has that got you? Would you like to get to a better place? Would you like to be at God's place for such a time as this? Maybe you're here and you really need a relationship with God, not just a religion. God's not, man makes religion. God made relationships. And you like to have a relationship that's close, that's beautiful, that's relational. And that fills the need of the void that's in your heart, the need that you have. He wants to meet you right where you are. 
And I'm going to just say, if that's you, and those online, I'm talking to you too. If that's you, I just want you to say, yes, I want God to take my life right where I am. Just stand to your feet and say, I, God, I stand because I want you to take my life right where I am, right where I am, right where I am. I'm ready to make God my Savior. Those online, ready to make God your Savior. That's what God wants. Father, I ask right now that you want us wholeheartedly to turn to you. And when we do, you meet us right there. May you touch each one, Lord, that has responded in heart and in action. God, I pray you do a work in their hearts as they make you their savior of their whole life, not in religion, but in a relationship. When you take them to the next level as they spend their time in your word, in your ways, fulfilling your will, so they may do your works. We ask this in Jesus' name. Can someone give God some praise in the house of the Lord? Well, we thank you for joining us today. Let's continue to believe that God is going to do a work in all of our lives and in his church, despite our current circumstances. If you would like to support the ministry of Salem First Assembly, you can do so by mailing to 430 Route 45, Salem, New Jersey, 08079, or by visiting our website at salemfirstag.org. Please join us for service next Sunday at 10.30 a.m., or you can watch service every Sunday afternoon on Facebook at Salem First Assembly or YouTube at Salem First AG. You can also listen to the message every Tuesday on Podbean. Have a blessed rest of your day. Let's remember to be a blessing and that life is living in faith every day.